welcome to The V-Hive, a platform focused on women's intimate health. With weekly episodes from the field's top practitioners, we discuss all of the things you've always thought about but never wanted to talk about. On this podcast, we are making the highest quality information on the most beloved part of your body accessible, understandable, and implementable. I'm your host, Hannah Matluck, and I started this platform as a result of my own experience with chronic pelvic pain. Throughout the years I spent healing my body, I became overwhelmingly interested and passionate about these topics and have made it my mission to create awareness and education on the complexities of the female body. This episode is sponsored by Materna Medical, the creators of Millie, the first vaginal trainer with millimeter by millimeter adjustable sizing, built in low and high vibration frequencies, silicone coating, and a transport friendly and discreet charging case. Now women of all ages can be empowered to overcome vaginal penetration difficulties in a comfortable, easy, and convenient way so that they can enjoy sexual activities and improve their intimate health. If you're interested in learning more about this product, you can visit their website, www.millieforher.com, and all VHive listeners can receive $25 off their first Millie by using the code VHive25 at checkout. That's $25 off your first Millie by using the code VHive25 at checkout. Today, I am here with Dr. Alyssa Dweck. She is a practicing gynecologist in Westchester County, New York, and a top doctor in New York Magazine and Westchester Magazine. She is adjunct assistant professor at New York Medical College and Massachusetts General Hospital consultant, Vincent's Memorial OBGYN service, and is also the co-author of V is for Vagina, the complete A to Z for your V and the sexual spark. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Dweck. I cannot wait to talk about a lot of interesting things that we have planned for this episode. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we kind of decided that we, because there were were a lot of different directions that this podcast could go in, but we decided we wanted to focus on why low estrogen can cause low libido and what we can do about it. So I'm looking forward to having you walk us through what the various causes of low estrogen in women are, why that causes low libido, and what can be done about it? Because I think that this is a pretty common, a common problem amongst women. You couldn't be more correct. The um, complaint that I get about low sex drive or low libido is common in my practice. And I think probably just to set the stage, it's important to realize that Libido is complex for women. I would uh, really assimilate it to mission control and all those buttons and levers and lights and buzzers as opposed to maybe with guys where there's just a light switch, you know, things Mm -hmm. just have to go up and down and that's that. So low estrogen is one piece of the libido puzzle for women. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a a great subject to, to speak about. Yeah, and I also think it's important to mention that low libido kind of goes hand in hand or could potentially go hand in hand with 
Symptoms such as vaginal dryness, painful sex, decrease in sexual responsiveness and orgasm because as and you've done a tremendous amount of work on this specific topic but when your estrogen levels are low physiologically there's a decrease in blood flow to your genitals which can actually lead to all of these symptoms which is really interesting and something that I've actually just recently been learning more and more about through talking to doctors who kind of specialize in the hormonal um, space. Yeah, and the reason that this low estrogen as a um, you know cause of low drive is so important is that it actually can span the ages. So it's not just a situation that is recognized by women in menopause, but also uh, perimenopausal women and women actually of all ages depending on their situation. So can you walk us through the main, like the kind of top five things that can cause low estrogen? Sure. So I think, I don't want to say that they're top five in any particular order, Mm -hmm. but surely these are things that I see regularly in my practice. So as I mentioned before, naturally declining estrogen levels due to lack of ovulation or, um, you know, uh, perimenopausal changes where ovulation is less common, definitely going to cause less estrogen. So Mm -hmm. the reason for this is that the ovaries are starting to wind down their responsibility of ovulation, which means that there's going to be less circulating estrogen going on. Uh, Eventually, there'll be very little to none secreted by the ovaries as women uh, go through menopause, and that's going to cause a a much lower estrogen level. This translates into an, an actual change in the cells of the vagina and the feeling of dryness and the lack of lubrication and the more difficult time uh, becoming naturally lubricated. So that's one reason. Another pretty common reason for similar um, source is lactation. So women who have just had babies and are nursing oftentimes note that they don't get their periods back for a couple of months or even upwards of a year. And this is because of lack of ovulation. The hormone prolactin, um, which is very high when women are lactating, is elevated and it is secreted in the same area of the brain that ovulation hormones are secreted. And so they interact and basically suppress ovulation. So these women also can note a very, very dry vagina due to less estrogen. Mm -hmm. This, of course, is reversible once lactation stops and periods resume. Uh, Various medications will cause this. So, for example, a lot of my patients who are being treated for breast cancer, for example, will have surgeries done or medications that they're taking to literally deplete their bodies of as much estrogen as possible in an effort to treat their breast cancer and ensure that it doesn't return. This is going to similarly cause changes in the vagina uh, that may cause dryness and discomfort, particularly during intimacy. So these are three common reasons. Another medication class that doesn't necessarily get as much attention as it should are the oral and systemic antihistamines because they don't necessarily only dry out your nasal passages, but they may dry out other secretions, including vaginal secretions. So that's something that we think about during allergy season. The birth control pill, while it does contain estrogen and progesterone in most cases, 
this can cause vaginal dryness in some women, and so that might have to be addressed separately. Mm -hmm. So those are fairly common reasons. Lastly, I do want to mention that um, certain eating disorders or excessive exercise uh, habits might cause uh, changes in the vagina akin to dryness because many of these women, especially those who suffer from what we call the athletic triad, no period, rapid weight loss, excessive exercise, and infertility, these women may also note changes in the vagina due to dry dryness and less estrogen from not ovulating. So I think these are are, uh, fairly common and uh, spoken about situations. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy to learn and and realize how low libido and low estrogen levels can actually happen at any stages of life. Like it's not just something that happens when you go through menopause or, you know, after you have give birth to a kid and are breastfeeding, like it can happen as early as your teens. And I think that that's something that's really important to kind of bring attention to. Sure. And, you know, the connection between low estrogen, vaginal dryness and discomfort and libido should be fairly clear because You know, it's reasonable to have discomfort during sex once or twice for various reasons, but if it is anticipated that you're going to have pain during sex every time, who's going to want to engage in that that's painful? Mm. So therefore, libido naturally starts to decline. It's almost a mind-body connection in this instance. Uh The other thing that goes on over time is that if you anticipate pain, your subconscious basically instructs your vaginal muscles, which after all are super, super strong. Think pushing a baby out, okay? It instructs your vaginal muscles to involuntary contract and become tight. In other words, sort of uh, putting up like a big do not enter sign. And this, of course, occurs over time and time again. It's not something that's going to occur if you have painful sex one time. But if it's an anticipated response frequently, those muscles become super tight and you almost have to voluntarily try to relax them. So we do have various measures to help with that, um, you know, that will uh, instruct people uh, Mm -hmm. to help with, including mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So let's say that that I'm your patient and I've come to you with low estrogen levels, loss of sex drive, vaginal dryness, what are the options for me? Like, how would you educate me and kind of walk me through the process of returning to a a healthy, a healthy sexual life? Right, right. So again, I, I think just to set realistic expectations, this is not something that typically gets solved in a 10 or 15 minute doctor's office visit. This oftentimes takes, you know, multiple sessions to really work on everything. So mm-hmm. with that said in the background, first, obviously checking for any sort of medical issues that might be causing low estrogen and correcting that, okay, so if, if it can be corrected. Second in this war chest would be to address the vaginal dryness. Wait, hold on. Let me ask you a quick question. When you say correcting any sort of medical issue, like what would that be? What does that mean? So, for example, let's say someone's using the birth control pill and we find out through doing a great history and physical that that seems to be the main culprit causing lower estrogen levels and translating to vaginal dryness and discomfort and then a lower libido. 
it might behoove us to first discontinue the birth control pill for a small, like short three month drug holiday and see if that corrects the problem. Mm. So that's kind of what I'm speaking of. Okay. Another example would be it's terrible allergy season. You know, you're taking three uh, different antihistamines to control your allergies. I may, uh, you know, help you to discontinue those systemic meds and use maybe a nasal spray to help your allergies and get rid of the medication that might also be influencing vaginal dryness. These are just simple, quick examples. That Interesting. I okay, I got yeah. it. Okay, so thought, so any sort of medical issue that can be corrected or reversed is sort of the first thing to uh, to elucidate and, and see what we can do about that. I think you know the next thing is to use the multiple tools we have in the in the tool chest for this. So, if somebody can uh, is a is a candidate to take estrogen in the vagina as a as a um, you know a great moisturizer and to correct the cellular changes that are going on as a result of low estrogen, then we'll sometimes use that, and it's quite helpful. Sometimes we also just resort to a great vaginal moisturizer and lubricant. And I'd like to just take the opportunity to really distinguish these two. Moisturizers are used chronically. So similar to using like a face cream, you do this every day after you wash your face and it keeps your skin all the time. Similarly, there are moisturizers for the vagina that can be used on a regular basis, let's say twice a week as sort of a sweet spot to keep the vagina moist. And oftentimes these are non-hormonal, over-the-counter or compounded solutions for vaginal dryness to be used all the time. On top of that, during intimacy, I always recommend a lubricant for women who are suffering from dryness, whether it's a water-based lubricant like something in CVS over-the-counter or a silicone-based lubricant, and there are several that are uh, kind of in my list of favorites. These things can be quite helpful to cut down on friction during sex, especially if somebody is dry, and make the situation more pleasurable. Mm. So I think that's sort of a first step, moisturizers, lubricants, and possibly vaginal estrogen. Okay, cool. And the only thing that I just want to say about going into a CVS or a Walgreens to buy a lube or a vaginal moisturizer is a lot of the drugstore feminine hygiene products have not so great ingredients in them. And so I think, yeah, so I think that for, for people listening who, who might go into a drugstore and just buy something that they see there, I would just say to proceed with caution because for example, I've learned about this ingredient glycerin and that can actually feed sugar in the vagina. So if yeah. someone has yeah. a, you know, if someone's prone to yeast infections, glycerin is actually an ingredient to avoid. But Most I, definitely. Right. So there is a study that does suggest that for those prone to yeast, that glycerin can promote that and actually increase the mm -hmm. uh, chance of getting an infection and having trouble getting rid of it. So that is absolutely true. With that said, however, there are plenty of people who use glycerin without a problem. And that's okay. why I think that it's trial and error. Yeah. There's another ingredient that a lot of women are choosing to stay away from, uh, propylene glycol, which can, again, be totally fine for some women, but can cause sensitivity for others. The other um, ingredient that seems to have gotten a lot of press is anything with parabens. Mm -hmm. Paraben is a uh, 
you know, used sometimes for um, uh, shelf life, but I believe that can be a hormonal disruptor. And so particularly for those women who are trying to avoid hormonal influence, staying away from parabens is a reasonable thing to do. Mm-hmm. Again, it's amazing to me how many women can put literally anything in their vagina without trouble and mm-hmm. others are, have to read every ingredient on the label of products they're using to confirm uh, that they're not going to be sensitive. So less is more is the user, usual adage, and especially for those who are sensitive and looking to help to control discomfort with intercourse. So moving on to supplements. I know that you have a lot of supplements that women can take that can be really beneficial in in this area. Right. So, you know, supplements uh, is a very broad category. Um, And for sexual libido, again, it's complicated. So we're going to look at various things to find out what's influencing libido. But other women do want to try to add supplements to either enhance their satisfaction or attempt to increase their drive in general. So when uh, all else has kind of been ruled out and we're looking to find something to help, one uh, supplement that I'll um, occasionally recommend is testosterone. So testosterone is a typically male hormone all women make it is not appropriate for everybody so i think that's very important to get across it is also not an fda approved medication for women um and this is why i'm sort of grouping it in the supplement category but uh testosterone can be used and compounded uh as a cream and in some cases can enhance libido for some women so that's something that I keep in my tool chest to uh, help with sexual drive. There's an amino acid called arginine, which has been um, considered potentially helpful to enhance blood flow uh, for some women. And uh, again, if you're looking at low estrogen, we may be looking at less blood flow in the vagina. So L-arginine supplements from over-the-counter might be used either alone or in combination other ingredients to help uh, enhance blood flow. Uh, DHEA is an oral supplement that's over-the-counter that is kind of a building block for testosterone and is considered a nutritional supplement. Some women do benefit potentially from taking this as a way that they might enhance their own testosterone production. Uh, So those are three supplements that come to mind to enhance libido. And um, again, they definitely have to be uh, considered on an individual basis. Um, And I won't get into all the nuances with that, but surely worth a Mm look-see. And the next thing that can be really helpful are tools such as vaginal dilators or trainers. What is your experience in, in this area and with your patients who who you've recommended certain dilators or trainers to? And, and, you know, for those who don't know what this is, I guess give us a brief explanation of what a vaginal trainer is. You bet. So this is the thing. Again, we're talking about women who might be experiencing pain Uh, during intimacy and so we really want to try to retrain the brain and the vagina to consider uh, intimacy to be pleasurable. One way to do this is to consider using a mechanical way to stretch the vagina gently and on your own terms 
so that the opening is a little bit more apt to, um, you know, be comfortable. And so that deeper penetration when the time comes will also be more comfortable. So the way that dilators generally work, and, and dilators have such a mystique about them and almost a taboo about them, but in essence, they really are just these small cylinders that uh, gradually get larger and larger, either uh, because you have a set and you start out with a very small one and then eventually uh, increase in size, or you use a, a very cool one called Mealy, which is an electronic one and it enlarges once it's placed in the vagina. But in any event, exercises are done with these dilators to mechanically stretch the opening and depth of the vagina gradually over time. So I normally put my patients who benefit, who might benefit from this type of exercise on an eight to 12 week program where maybe three times a week for sessions of 10 or 15 minutes, uh, dilators are used to mechanically stretch the vagina in a relaxing setting. So some women will watch TV or listen to music or practice a mindfulness exercise when they're doing this. And basically it's Something done usually without a partner so that you don't have to worry about pleasing someone else, but you're just really working on the stretching on your own. Mm -hmm. Some of these dilators and exercisers, if you will, can also have a vibrating feature so that they can be pleasurable. And we know that vibration enhances blood flow so it sort of serves a dual purpose and medicinal uh, for that matter and especially for women who might feel uncomfortable using a more traditional vibrator mm -hmm. uh, I find that what I'll instruct my patients to do is start on a dilator program for 8 to 12 weeks and to take intercourse with their partner off the table for that time so that they don't have any pressure but just can go forward with these exercises to gently stretch the vagina and train the brain not to close off and tense those muscles because it's not painful because you're doing it on your own terms gradually. And many, many women recognize success after this program and actually get anxious to return to intercourse once the program is completed. That's really interesting. And so the Millie, you know, I, I think a lot of women listening are familiar with dilators, but I think that the Millie is also a really cool one because it expands itself so that you can start at a small size. And then with just the press of a button increase the size of the piece that you insert so that it's like one tool instead of a set of dilators and I think that that's what makes it really interesting yes it, it actually it's very unique it's the only um you know dilator of this sort that I'm familiar with and uh it, it works really well and the vibrating feature is also important especially mm -hmm. for a blood flow enhancement um i think it's important to note that it is coated with a medical grade silicone so a water-based lubricant does need to be used with this particular dilator but the plastic dilators which are often given to patients particularly after something like radiation therapy for a cancer 
any sort of lubricant could be used on plastic, but not on silicone. I just wanted to make sure I made that point clear. Um, but yeah, they're super helpful, especially uh, when used uh, for an exercise program. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes I'll put people on a maintenance program like once a week, just 10 or 15 minutes for dilation, just to keep things as stretched as, uh, you know, the progress that had been made. So you don't take any steps backwards. And uh, yeah find it a little tedious to get started but with good instruction and patience it it really works amazing and the last point that i wanted to make in regards to the millie is that they're really calling it a vaginal trainer which is interesting and unique and perhaps incredibly helpful because there's so much stigma around all of this and around the word dilator it's not really a lovely word. So I think that kind of rephrasing and changing the idea to a vaginal trainer so that women are a little bit more comfortable with this concept makes makes it just an all around an easier thing to approach and a better way to integrate this into someone's life. Absolutely. Look, whatever it's called, it's it's a very helpful tool to be used in addition to moisturizers and lubricants mm-hmm. and mindfulness exercises, and then also, um, you know, uh, certain supplements and um, estrogen if indicated. So, it you, we really can approach the libido due to vaginal pain potentially caused by low estrogen from multiple angles. And that's really the type of program that works when we're taking different perspectives to to help. Mm-hmm. And in terms of natural lifestyle changes, because I believe this is so important and I know that you're totally on board with all of this as well, but just the things that we can do in our day-to-day life to kind of decrease cortisol and that can actually help to rebuild estrogen and and rebalance hormone levels in the body, such as um, reducing alcohol, stress management, changing our diet, working on our sleep patterns and sleep habits, like all of these things that we can kind of do for free at home are so important. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So listen, a huge part of libido for women, and a lot of people don't want to hear it or don't want to recognize it, has to do with your sexual self-esteem. If you don't feel sexy, you are not going to feel sexual. And that is a big part of sexual drive. So whether this comes in the form of exercise so that you feel like you're getting to your fighting weight or you like what your tone looks like, that's going to be a very important part of libido is exercising and having that uh, confidence in uh, the way you feel because you are happy with the way you look uh, and feel from a health standpoint. The second thing is diet. You know, we typically recommend the Mediterranean diet as an overall healthy diet, but also one to help with libido. This is a naturally low glycemic diet, low carb diet, but it's a lifestyle change, not a quick fix diet. This is lean proteins. If you uh, eat meat, then it would include lean meats. 
It's loads of fruits and vegetables. It's olive oil instead of butter. It's low sugar. It's no processed foods. It does allow alcohol because face it, a lot of us do still like our wine uh, from time to time or even a little bit more than that. So that's a diet that really is uh, a pro-sexual diet, if you will. Um, the stress reduction, especially now, is could not be more important. When you think about the amount of cortisol that gets released constantly when we're under stress, it creates, number one, that fat around the middle and visceral fat, which is unhealthy, but it, it causes fatigue because you can't be on overdrive with stress 24-7. So a, a, a good way to manage this is daily um, meditation or mindfulness exercises just to clear your head and uh, lower stress levels, at least temporarily, if possible. Mm -hmm. So those three things are huge when it comes to libido, all part of a, a healthy lifestyle. And I'm so glad that we talked about this because I think that a lot of times, as you said, people don't want to change the simple things in their life. If someone's used to not working out, it's like, oh, okay, now I have to go work out or I have to cut out the ice cream I eat every night or I have to reduce my caffeine intake. And it's not that you have to deprive yourself of the things that bring you joy, but it's like, it, it is really important to focus and to actually bring attention to the things that you're doing every single day that could actually be kind of going against the other things you're doing, such as vaginal moisturizers or dilating vaginal training or using lubes or taking a certain medication. All of those things can be so helpful. But if you don't also place emphasis on exercise, diet, mindfulness, you're not going to get to where you want to be. I, I don't believe. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I also wanted to just bring in one thing that we haven't mentioned, which is partner status. Mm. So, you know, many times I will get involved with a, a, you know, libido consultation with a patient and really find that I can't find anything that might be causing the low drive, except for the fact that they really are not having a good connection with their partner. And that is a whole nother subject that I really count on my colleagues in the mental health field to help with because, you know, a partnerectomy or a husbandectomy is not going to be uh, something that I can manage in my office. Marital counseling or relationship counseling is really, really important. Communication with your partner also very important. So you may have a great relationship, but you know your partner may not be able to read your mind about what's really going on with your sex drive, which is that it hurts, and you kind of have to bring them in on this so that it can be a uh, something you approach together. That's a really, really, really good point. Thank you for making that because I think that I mean I very deeply believe in the power of talk therapy psychotherapy cognitive behavioral therapy and I think that that for a lot of people can also be a huge factor without question yeah are there any resources you have to recommend for everyone listening yeah so obviously your your gynecologist is a great resource but uh for those um who are in the menopausal realm or the perimenopausal age category having issues there is a website called menopause.org 
this is, you know, scientifically based information, both for practitioners, but also for patients. And I find it very helpful often uh, giving out their information and writing in my office. And I find that super helpful. And then there's another organization called iswish.org, I-S-S-W-S-H dot org, um, a uh, sexual health uh, website for for uh, patients and practitioners alike. And then lastly, one called ASECT, A-A-S-E-C-T dot org, which really covers more of the mental health sides of libido issues and sexual uh, health issues um, and has a, a laundry list of qualified practitioners in the mental health world to help women through uh, issues, whether it's marital and relationship counseling or other um mental health, things like depression and anxiety as it relates to sexual health. Amazing. Thank you. And if anyone wants to contact you, where can they do so? Right. So my website is drdweck.com. Uh, and I welcome uh, visitors. I cannot give individual medical advice on this site, but I welcome uh, comments and uh Uh, yeah, look forward to hearing from anybody. Thank you so much for being here and taking the time to share all of your incredible information with everyone listening. You bet. My pleasure. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Before we go, for those who are interested in becoming a member of the VHive and receiving additional bonus content every single month, straight to your inbox, check out our membership platform, at www.thevhive.com backslash memberships. There's so much exclusive content that you guys will receive and you will also be supporting the VHive and helping us to continue to grow and produce this content. So please check out our membership platform and see you next week. This podcast is for education purposes only. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice. During the episodes, no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Listeners should seek the assistance of their healthcare provider for any concerns or questions they have.